Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message. So we're, we're going to turn the book of Job then around the corner a little bit and then talk about uh, the reality of the re- resurrection in response to Job's uh, predicament. Uh, the reality of the good news of the gospel, which is that Christ uh, is risen and that in his resurrection our hopes reside. do that, we have to um, touch on the ending of Job, and that's what you heard uh, Pastor Brandon reading this morning, all 17 verses of the last chapter, 42nd chapter of the book of Job, and to sufficiently um, understand how the book of Job ends, we have to understand how it begins. So if you take your Bible and turn with me then this morning and go back to the first chapter of the book of Job. We didn't read a lot of scripture out of this because I assumed that maybe wrongly so that you were acquainted with what uh, the well-known prologue of the book of Job. We likened the book of Job to a sandwich, whereas the first piece of bread on the bottom is the prologue contained in chapters 1 and 2, and then the thin piece of bread um, on on the top is the last few verses of Job 42, which you've heard this morning. And in between, there is this section of poetry from chapters 3 on through the beginning of chapter 42, which fleshes out the argument. We've seen from the argument that Job's three friends have, basically they're saying that uh, wicked people suffer, righteous people are blessed by God, and Job, you are suffering, so we can only conclude that you've done something wrong to offend God. Job, of course, denies this. Um, The argument from the three friends, Bildad, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar uh, becomes more intense. At the end, uh, you can see that God has to intervene. We've seen that in the 42nd chapter. God has to intervene in their friendship and tells them they were wrong. Job's friends, you're wrong, particularly you, Eliphaz. And you better get Job to pray for you because although not everything that he said is right, what he has said is more right than what you said. There's this increasing intensity as Job's friends speak in three series of of arguments, and it gets uh, there's more heat than light at times. Eliphaz says uh, you're a slight sinner. You know you, you kind of got a hiccup in the road with your relationship with God, and so if you just go, just tell him you're sorry, then you'll get back on his good side, and things will be like it was. Uh, Bildad, on the other hand, says it's more serious than that. 
uh, Bildad, in, uh, in fact, it might be Zophar. Uh, Zophar even is so crass as to say, well, God's not really mad at you, Joe, because you're still alive. If God was mad at you, you'd be dead, like your children, who obviously the reason they died is because they did something to offend God. It's the theme of retribution, which is contained in the pages of of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, that if you do the right thing, God will bless you. If you don't do the right thing, then that invites uh, uh, God's wrath, turns his face. In fact, God could curse you, and ergo sum. Therefore, the conclusion of the matter is, if you're suffering... It's because you've done something wrong to offend the Almighty. And on the other hand, if you live a righteous life, uh, and if you can give me just a little bit more, I don't know if you can or not in a monitor, that would be good. If you live a righteous life, uh, then God will bless you. Uh, We hear this in the New Testament from uh, the mouth of the Apostle Paul. Uh, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So we often heard this admonition from our parents as children. You need to do the right thing. You think God will, you know, they used to talk about the rapture taking place when you went to see a movie. Walter Gwynn would say, you think God's going to walk down the dark I'll of a movie theater and tap you on the shoulder and say, hi, I'm here to get you. It's time to go. Um, it was a great sermon illustration, but I think that theology in the Bible is more complicated than that. Um, there's lots of things that I could be doing in this life that I, you know, if if what I'm doing at the very instant, then gets me in like Flynn or I'm rejected, then how many know somebody here this morning is going to be doing the wrong thing when the rapture takes place? It's it's more complicated than that. So this is this is the theme of the book of Job. The theme really is back in the first chapter, there's a question. Here here's if if Job still is a conundrum to you or, or you're, you're still, it's a question mark, like what's this all about? You need to focus on the question that the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, attorney asks God. There was a day, first chapter of the book of Job, God is holding court. It's like a king in a heavenly court. Sons of God have gathered together before him. And uh, Hasatan, Satan, and of course the time that the book of Job was written, the idea of an evil one in the sense that you and I understand it today wasn't fully developed. We, we sometimes read this story and we say, well, that's, you know, God's in heaven on his throne and the sons of God are there. How does, devil, how does Satan get into heaven? Well, it's, it's not a fully developed concept yet. It's more of that God is holding court, and as he is holding court in a courtroom, you have in walks the prosecutor, and in walks the opposing team, 
the attorney for the defendant, and you have this kind of informal dialogue that goes on before court is gaveled into session. God speaks and says, what up, Hasatan? And Satan says, well, uh, I've been going up and down, back and forth on the face, to and fro on the face of the earth. <clears throat> Implying that Satan can't be at the same place at the same time. He doesn't have that ability. Only God is omnipresent. God, uh, who knows all things, says to the prosecuting attorney, as though he's reading his mind, you're looking for someone to haul into this court and accuse of uh, hypocrisy or duplicity. Have you considered my servant Job? If you look in verse number 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth. That's why I say we've we probably never met a man like Job. Uh, when we get to heaven, it's possible that Jesus, we know, will be sitting on the right hand of God the Father, but it's possible that Job might be sitting on the other hand. I mean, he was that Job and Jesus, there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn between their lives. Have you considered my servant Job? And look what he says, there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, again, who fears God and turns away from evil. Why do I say again? Because that's in the first verse. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The writer of the book of Job wants us uh, to note this. This was, the King James Version uses the word perfect. Have you considered this man? In other words, it, it might be said that Job in the Old Testament, as Christ in the New Testament, is the man who is chosen to walk out on the battlefield and fight for the souls of the nation. One man, kind of a David and Goliath thing. Whoever wins the battle, wins the day. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now look at uh, the prosecuting attorney's Response, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, this is the ESV, does Job fear God for no reason? Does Job fear God for no reason? Now, that doesn't exactly make it clear. You have to think about this question quite a bit. Does, does Job serve God for nothing? I think the King James Version says, does Job fear God for not? Uh, the Message uh, Bible, Eugene Peterson, listens. So, this is Satan speaking. So do you think Job does all that? All that means he was a perfect and upright man. He hated evil. He loved God. You think Job does all that out of the sheer goodness of his heart? Why, no one ever had it so good. 
You pamper him like a pet. Make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. Bless everything he does. He can't lose. Stephen Mitchell in his uh, highly praised translation of the book of Job puts it this way. The Lord said, did you notice my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and avoids evil. The accuser said, doesn't Job have a good reason for being so good? Haven't you put a hedge around him, himself and his whole family and everything he has? You bless whatever he does, and the land is teeming with his cattle, But just reach out and strike everything he has, and I bet he'll curse you to your face. Of course, Job, throughout the book of Job, is unaware that this has taken place. And that's what we see in this picture. We see the earthly Job below on the bottom, and then we see what's taking place in the heavenly realm and in the divine court. Does does Job serve God for nothing? Now, you take that question. In other words, because God has been good to Job, Job can find a way to serve God. But if you take your being good to Job away from him, God, he'll curse you to your face. So you take the question, does Job serve God for nothing? And you put your own name in there. Say it with me. Does Alan serve God for nothing? Come on. (laughs) I know you don't want to do this. Don't, Don't say, does Alan serve God for nothing? You're supposed to put your name in there, right? Does Christy serve God for nothing? Does Jay serve God for nothing? Does Guy serve God for nothing? Do we serve the, in other words, this is, This is the important focal question of the book of Job. If everything that I put in that pile that was important is taken away from me, and it's shocking when when we heard it read in the 42nd chapter, the evil that God did to to Job. That's what the book says, right? We want to preach the word. (laughs) We don't want to preach that word. Right? If, if everything that I've got that is important in my life, right? Houses, lands, this is what we heard in the gospel lesson. Peter, I love him, but how crass can you be? Right? Wow. If the rich young ruler can't get into heaven, right? You, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. If it's hard for a rich man to enter in, What about us? Is there anybody that can be saved? See, these are the questions that have to be asked in the presence of Jesus. You you just can't make assumptions. Can anybody be saved? And here we are. We've given up everything. We've volunteered uh, ourselves into poverty. And I love him when he says this. What do we get? It's a perennial question, isn't it? 
You say, well, you know, yeah, I understand that. I, I would serve God if everything was taken away. Really? Um, hey, let's just talk about this. <laughs> there, there are some Sunday mornings, I'm sure, when I no longer have to, have to be here, there are some, some Sunday mornings that I'm going to wake up and I know that I should be here, wherever the covenant community is. I should, uh, Jesus is important to me. He's written me a love letter. You know, when Christy wrote me a letter or sent me a card, I didn't let the letter languish on the table and say, ah, uh, well, I'll open that tomorrow. When my mother would send a care package to ABI, which wasn't very often, but when she did, Christy got the good care packages. She had a family that loved her. Me, not so much. But what when we got the package and we went back to our dorm room, did we just set it on the chair and say, you know what, I... The food's so good here at Bible school, I'll just, I'll just wait for that. No, what happened? You couldn't get it open fast enough, and then when you got it open, guess what? Stuff would disappear in the middle of the night. So I know there's going to be a Sunday morning when I'm going to be in bed, and I'm going to say, I should be there, and I really love you, Jesus, and I know you wrote a love letter to me in the Bible, and I should hear the word. I need to hear the word. But you know what? I don't think I'm going today. When, when we get something as simple as a cold, we say, this is the default position of fallen human nature. We say, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Don't you realize I have things to do? How many have ever said that? You got sick. Maybe it was a cold. Maybe it was worse than a cold. Maybe it was a life-threatening illness. And then you definitely, you're saying, you know, a few weeks ago when I was went to the hospital and all that, I'm like, hello, God, you know I've been praying for a year that I need. Open your heart. Give me time. Give me health. Give me strength. This doesn't look like you're opening your heart. You're giving me time, health, or strength. Why is this happening to me? And God has the right, then, to stand in the midst of our pain and suffering, as slight as it might be or as serious as it might be. He has the right to stand in the midst of our pain and suffering, look us in the eye, and ask us this question. Do you serve me because of the, of the graces that I give you? Or if there was nothing but just me left, would that be enough? Do you serve me for what you can get out of the relationship? And, and look, human relationships are fraught with that. Even husbands and wives that have been married for years and years and years and years, you, you'll hear... A husband or a wife say, you know what? I'm not putting up with that anymore. Well, <laughs> you said I do to these questions. 
the richer for poor, in, in sickness and in health, for better or worse. How many know that there can be a lot of bad times? For better or worse, till death do us part. Now, there are things that could happen in a marriage, and the Bible allows for those things. But Jesus' response is, really, there, there wouldn't be any such. The reason why people sometimes choose divorce is not because they have the justification for it. It's because of the hardness of their heart. I'm not putting up with that anymore. You know what? This is a two-way street. You know, you you haven't carried your load in the marriage for years. We'll hear often in counsel. I've had to do everything. And this important question then comes to the forefront. Did you get married just for what you could get out of the marriage? For what the other person could do for you? Or is that person enough? Is the person of Jesus Christ enough? That's what the accuser is saying. The accuser is suggesting this to God. You've you've got this fixed, God. You get all the glory. Sure, you get all the glory, God, because you showered down so many blessings. Who wouldn't serve you? So this question then has to be asked. I've been reading a book called Sitting with Job. It has several different essays in it. And this is an Indian writer. He says, is there disinterested piety? Is there disinterested piety? This is what really the accuser is asking God. If, If you didn't build this hedge around your people, they wouldn't serve you. It's because you've, you've rigged the lottery. And so people lavish you with praise and sing your glory. But take away the benefits and see who will be pious then. Is there disinterested piety? Satan claims that Job behaves according to standards of religion only as long as he finds it useful. You see that word useful? Pragmatism really is the God of the age. Look, if you can create a church environment in which people can leave and say, well, that that was useful. I can put that to work for me. That's going to benefit me. That's going to help me in life. Uh, Three ways to do this. Six ways to avoid that. Seven ways to become a millionaire, a Christian millionaire. Get them out of here. That's what we, the marketing of the Christian message. Look, look, Satan claims that Joe behaves according to standards of religion only as long as he finds it useful. You know, when, when I come to church anymore, one of the benefits of sitting in the front pew is that I, I don't see who's there, who isn't, and what the people that are here are doing or aren't doing. We've got this kind of confused. When we come to church, we're not really the audience. There is 
brothers and sisters, in the kingdom of God, there is an audience of one. So when I come to worship, I set aside, I, I attempt to set, I try to set aside, it is my purpose to set aside what I feel, how I feel, what my mindset might be. I am in the presence of Almighty God. So if you came to church, I don't know, we used to sing that song, I don't know what you came to do, but I came to praise the Lord. If somebody says, there aren't many people here. You know what? The most important person that could ever attend a worship service is here. You say, well, you know, there's not, we don't have many good singers. Well, whatever voice, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You say, well, what are we going to do? And I say, we're in the presence of Almighty God. What, <laughs> what choice do we have when I have been invited to appear before the king? You say, well, I, you know what? My life isn't getting any better. I don't, there's no practical teaching. And it's all, all theology, 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 books, 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 paintings, paintings, paintings. Oh, God, I wish I could just get kind of a, a grip on, on what this is all about. Do, do you realize, Christie said it this morning, it's not about you. It's not about me. We are in the presence of Almighty God. What would be pleasing to him? Uh. Do we, and I fail some Sundays miserably, but do we really, do we really feel like that is what God wants? Sorry, God, I'm distracted today. And yeah, I know you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you're worthy to be praised, and this is the day that the Lord has made, and blah, 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 yada, 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 but I'm just not really into it. What if you had the worst day of your life? What if you got Job-like news in the past week and you said to yourself, I'm not going to church. I'm mad at God. I'm upset. I'm angry. There, In fact, I'm contemplating the fact that there, there might not be a God. And then God gets in your face and says, Oh, so I have to keep the candy coming for you to worship. I got to give you the exact change and make sure the soda that you want is in the soda machine. And when you hit that button, how many have hit the button and nothing happened? And what do you do? You hit it again. Have you seen people beat on soda machines? Some guy go out to his car and get the tire iron out of his car. Come back and say... You know, 50 cents, right? A dollar. That's really important. Oh, you're one of those. You're in this group over here. 
many that are first will be last. Many who are last. Not the wise of this world. There's not many wise people in this world that would choose this way. The wisdom of God confounds the wisdom of the age. Those people who appear to be unavoidably last, they will be first. Satan claims that Job behaves according to standards of religion only as long as he finds it useful, whereas here is the real ground of piety. Piety begins where usefulness ends. Though he slay me. Yet will I trust him. Ooh, take your breath away. You and I don't have to worry about God mentioning our names to Satan. God knows that we would fold some quicker than others. Thanks be to God that there was a Job and that there is a Jesus. I'm not saying that God will always consign us to live our Christian walk in the kingdom of God in lack. I'm not saying that at all, and I don't think that Jesus is saying that. When Peter asked that, <laughs> he just, you know, he put his he put his tongue in gear before his mind did. It just came out, right? That was Peter. What do we get out of this? You know, we've given up, and Jesus says, well, you're going to, you 12 are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. In Mark's version, Mark chapter 10, we don't have time to look at it this morning. He says, you, you will be paid back houses and lands in this lifetime a hundredfold. And I do believe that the, the gospel brings the blessing of God into a person's life. I, I, I I'm not, I'm not saying um, that that we always have to be in lack and want and and I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is, how do you react when the things that you have accrued in your life, the important things that you have worked hard for in your life, how, what is your attitude towards God when those things go missing? They're not always going to go missing. But when God, for reasons only known to him, decides, you know what, I'm going to remove those things from this person for a while and ask us the question in the middle of the night, are you serving me for only the, the candy I can give you? Or if you had nothing but me, would you still serve me? I believe that at least once in every Christian's life, you're going to be faced with that question. Everything um, that you're standing on begins to slip and slide under your feet. The plan you had worked out, the predictable walk, walking out of your future, how you wanted to end your days. I'm not finished this morning, but I'm done, and I'll close with this. 
the very last slide this morning. That, that's, that's the theme of the book. That, that's the question that has to be answered. Job is just not an academic study about the person called Job. Job is a book about, okay, when, when I as a good person suffer, and that suffering has been introduced into my life, has been allowed by God Almighty, what is my attitude towards God? Am I still, am I still interested? Am I still filled with passion to serve and glorify Him? I love this. At the end of the book of Job, of course, um, Brandon was struggling with, we know that Job had ten, ten children, seven sons and three daughters, and that the daughters are given back to Job and his wife. It, it, the details, we would li- I would like more details. So like, did Job's wife, who, who wasn't, who was faithful, at least according to Blake, with him through the whole ordeal, what did, did they go through like 10 pregnancies again? Anybody think about that? It's like, we're going to have babies, and Renee said, how can you lose a binky? You know, are there going to be binkies? Lost binkies in Job's house, right, at 70 years of age? And I, I read this at the end of Francis Anderson's commentary on the book of Job. This is in a footnote. He says, C.H. Gordon, in a public lecture, has suggested that Job's children in chapter 42 are identical with the ones in chapter 1. Here it is. Raised from the dead. The 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews tells us that when Abraham went up on Mount Moriah with his only son Isaac, he'd come to the conclusion that if God, in fact, required the death of his only begotten son, that God was able to raise him from the dead. I don't know if I lost those people in my family who are dearest to me, and you know who they are, whether I could walk in the next Sunday into this church and say, I believe that God is able to raise them. Do you only serve me because your children and grandchildren are healthy? Do you only serve me because there's enough money in the bank? Do you only serve me because the relationships in your life are healthy? Do you only serve me because you're happy? What happens when the stuff in the pile is removed from a season. And God says, will you praise me for nothing? I love this picture. William Blake, of course, has 22 watercolors. The last water, the first watercolor is Job and his wife and his children sitting under a tree. Musical instruments are hanging in the tree. 
and it's Blake's way of saying that this was a very pious family. It wasn't taken with glee and mirth, parties, anything like that. The last watercolor, the 22nd watercolor, Job and his wife and his family have the instruments in their hands. It's the same children who were in the first watercolor are in the last watercolor color God has, I believe, as Gordon does, that God raised them from the dead. How could it be otherwise? If you lose a child, and that child is replaced with another child, can the child that comes after actually replace the child that came first? Christy has a friend who she worked with for years at school as a nurse. She has three sons. One of the sons was lost in a tragic accident, I think it was. And every year that she sends out a Christmas card, there's the mother, the father, the two surviving boys, and there's a picture of the boy that passed away. We, we, we couldn't say that it was full and final restitution if God says, here, you're going to have to go through ten pre- pregnancies, searching for ten lost binkies. Because how could those ten subse- subsequent children ever replace the ten that first graced your household? No, no, I, <laughs> I believe that this is God, you see, knows us, we, that we are human, that we are made of flesh, that we are weak. And even when we say to God, those things aren't important to us, God knows that when those things are removed from us, we hurt and we're, we suffer. So Anderson concludes, these gifts at the end are gestures of grace, not rewards for virtue. I'm not restoring you, Job, because you've been a good boy. I'm restoring these things to you because I love you. That makes my heart ache. And it makes me cry out to God for mercy. For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.covcomchu.org. That's covcomchu.org. Or give us a call at 314-869-4367. At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.